Good morning. I hope you have a wonderful day. So we are up to, in the sixth chapter in Suvis, page 68a. Okay, um, line from the top. Tanned up here, but I'm Whoever hides his eye, conceals his eyes from tzedakah, averts his eyes from giving tzedakah, is the equivalent of idolatry. The rabbis don't just say it. You know, there are very few things a rabbi compared to idolatry. One is losing your temper, uh, arrogant, whoever is arrogant, like idolatry, and who doesn't give, who's stingy, who doesn't give, who's not generous with tzedakah. It's not just, uh, you know, we want to condemn harshly, so we say the worst thing is... No, it's, it's real. How do we know this? It says over here, It says, we read two weeks ago in Parsha Zerei, be careful for your heart, your, 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 your terrible heart, that you shouldn't follow idolatry. It says over there, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. it says about not lending money, about not lending money before the Shemitah, because the sabbatical year erases all debt. So you want to avoid, I don't want to lend money, then it'll be erased, I won't get my money back. So the title calls it Belial, a bad person. And it says also in the same parsha about, uh, about the Yatra Nashim, people who went out to worship the, um, in the, uh, the Iranidachas, people who, who go out to incite the whole city to become idolatry, idolaters. So the Torah uses the same expression. So Because why is a person stingy? Why is a person not generous? Because my money. I worked hard for my money. I owned it. How can I give my money to someone else? That's idolatry. It's your money. Who gives you existence? Who gives you health? Who gives you life? Who gives you money? Everything is sent that you have comes from Hashem. Hashem gives and we receive. And how do we become godly? How do we acknowledge that truth? We in turn become godly. We givers. A position in life has to be, I'm a giver. I'm not here to take, I'm here to give. Hashem gives and I give. I extend Hashem's giving. Every gift Hashem gave me, talents, energy, time, money. That's idolatry. You're, you're turning yourself into a god. You're worshipping yourself. You know, the atheist is a, a self-created man and he worships, he worships his creator. Talent about the rabbis learn... Sam is saying no, he one who blinds his eye. Matz is bitten, who blows his stomach. Who shrivels his leg in order to solicit charity. He fakes it. A Hollywood actor puts on a show and he collects money. There was a collector once in 1770. He died. They realized he had millions of dollars. And he would go schnurring and collecting quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies. You know, but he pretended to be, to be in need. Ain't a nifter, a welfare queen. Living in million-dollar apartments, but pretending to be to be uh, need. He's not going to die until he actually becomes poor. That's it says the They once asked the Alter Rebbe. They said, you know, the Alter Rebbe's birthday is coming up. The Chassidim are fakers. They're a bunch of fakers. They pretend as if they love Hashem, as if they really are in awe of Hashem, as if. Uh, faking it, they don't, it's not real. The Alter Rebbe says, maybe you're right, but the Gemara says, whoever fakes it, 
you fake it until 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 you make it. Eventually, Hashem will make it. It's real. So let them fake it, but eventually, Hashem will help. They're really going to genuinely love Hashem and be in love Hashem. One who accepts charity but doesn't need it, safe in he won't die from this world until he actually actually needs it. By the way, who who is you have to be careful. Who is that person who needs it and doesn't ask is also terrible because there's no shame if you need it. You can't protect it. You can't for your basic needs. There's no shame in asking the community to help you. Because sometimes they're embarrassed. Yes, they're embarrassed. But on the other hand, if you need it, in a way, you have a responsibility. It's like you, you don't belong to yourself. So if you need help, you have to. You have to. In fact, you might have learned also. We learned in the mission. We learned in the mission in person who's poor, we don't tell him sell your house or your furniture. In order you should have anyone who has 200 zuz cannot receive charity. So a person doesn't have cash, 200 zuz, but he has furniture that he can sell his house. It's worth a lot. So you don't tell him sell your house, so you'll have 200 and you won't receive money. You, don't, you, don't, you won't be able to receive donations anymore. You don't have to. Take him out of a loy. We don't, but time that we learn the brides. A person, a pauper, who's using golden utensils, let him use silver utensils. Let him sell the silver. He can use copper utensils. In other words, if he'll be able to sell his gold and instead substitute it for silver, sell his silver and substitute it for copper, and then he'll have enough cash. He won't need to receive. He won't be allowed to receive any more, any more donations. He has money. You can't say you don't have money. I'm in need. Who says you're in need? Who says you have to live in Park Avenue? I don't want to sell my, I don't want to sell my stocks. I have no money. Yeah, exactly. So it's a contradiction. Here the mission says you don't have to sell. And here the price says you do have to sell. It's not a contradiction. It's a difference. The Bryce says you have to sell, we're talking about the bed and table. The mission says you don't have to sell, we're talking about cups and plates. In other words, you're eating utensil, you're very, you're very finicky about what you eat. I'm going to eat, and I'm used to a certain level. I eat nice dishes, I'm going to, you know, the food will be disgusting if I eat it and cheap. But sleeping? No, sleeping, a table. That you can exchange. Braise just says, right, uh, utensils, furniture. It doesn't say you sell, sell your, uh, doesn't say you sell your house, right. You don't feel at home. You're used to a certain thing. We already learned earlier, yesterday we learned, that you have to provide, you don't have to give a person luxury, but you have to provide his needs. What are his needs? It's very subjective. You can have a person who's used to, there's a person runs ahead of him before he goes. When he was wealthy, just everyone run ahead of him to announce that he's coming. Even the billionaires today, even Bill Gates and uh, and and Elon Musk doesn't have people running in front of them. <laughs> Elon Musk is coming. Even the, the multi-billionaire, hundred billion dollars doesn't uh, Bezos doesn't do that. But in the olden days, a rich person would have someone running in front of him, parading, announcing, here goes so-and-so. If he's used to that, that's part of tzedakah. If he loses his money, you have to provide for him. And so-and-so, one of the Amidoyim, Rava himself ran. He couldn't find, he couldn't pay anyone to do it. He himself ran and announced for this poor person that he's walking. 
that's so that's a need that a person has. So if a person has needs a house, see, that's what he needs. You can't tell him to sell your house and he's on Park Avenue. No, move move to Brooklyn. Doesn't work. What's the distinction between cups and plates? And 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 that you don't have to sell. But your bed and your table you do have to sell. He says the armor me easily because he says it's repulsive to me. I can't eat in cheaper cheaper uh, uh, plates utensils. So the same thing is with a bed. I can't sleep in it. A cheap bed. Don't forget you spend a third of your life in your bed. People spend money on everything except their mattress. That's the most important thing in your life is your mattress. You can spend a third of your life in it. Make sure buy an expensive mattress, a comfortable mattress. You know, that's not the place to be cheap in. You're right. There is no distinction. Just like we don't force him to sell his golden plates. We don't force him to sell his comfortable bed or his table. But the braises means that you sell, you substitute the gold for the silver, silver for the copper, macharesha, the cast. But we're talking about a silver plow. You have to have a golden plow. <laughs> the plow is a gardening tool. <laughs> so you have to have gold? Yes, maybe when you're rich, you have a golden broom. <laughs> but you can live with a silver, silver, a silver plow is just as good. Better than accepting tzedakah. Taisva says it's referring to a silver comb to groom yourself in the bathhouse. So even though it's personal use, but nevertheless, it's not like a, it's not an eating utensil. <laughs> Because it can be a silver also. It's also pretty good. I've never seen a silver comb in the bathtub. Fine. You know, you have to have a seven-star hotel. A five-star hotel is also good. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> so it's luxury. You know, it's, it's a luxury and that you can exchange. To collect tzedakah, for that you don't have to collect tzedakah. The pop answers, like, Kasha, it's not a contradiction. Can the Mishnah says you don't have to sell. He's talking about a pauper who's not subject to Caesar. But however, a person who's already, the court imposed upon him a Caesar, then we say, okay, we're going to seize the gold, sell the gold, and, and substitute it for silver. Sell the silver. A person who doesn't have 200 zuz. Is allowed to take. You're allowed to even give him a thousand dollars. So if he doesn't have, we don't. We don't sell. But you do have because you have a cop, a golden thing. If we sell it, you'll have two hundred. No, it's okay. You can take it. But if a person took it unlawfully, when he collected, when he took the tzedakah money, he did have two hundred dollars cash. And now we want to make him pay back. He doesn't have any cash. He doesn't have the cash to pay back the tzedakah that he took. So there the court says, you know what? We're going to take, we're going to sell you sell gold and substitute it for silver, sell with silver. And it doesn't matter. That's anything, the bed, any, anything that you have. Because you already took. You already took unlawfully. You took unlawfully. But you're right, according to everyone, both the Bryce and the Mishnah, if a person doesn't have cash, $200 cash, we don't force him to sell his gold and, and downgrade it to silver or for sell, take his silver and downgrade it to gold. It's only when he took it unlawfully, then we collect that way. We take from the gold and substitute it for silver and so forth. Okay. Next mission. Mishnah. 
If an orphan was married by her mother, only the father has the right to give his minor daughter's hand in marriage. But the, rabbinically, the rabbi said that, uh, that if she's orphaned, she lost her father, so the mother or the brother can marry, marry her off if she agrees. You know, they can't force her to marry. The father can force her to marry. You know, if she wants, she doesn't want. But the, uh, the mother or the sister, it's only if she agrees. The father can force her? Yeah, he doesn't have to ask her. He just gives her a hand in marriage, a minor. Yeah. And he gave her a dowry of only a hundred or fifty zoos. A very small dowry. Minor like under thirteen. Yeah. Under twelve, under twelve. When she reaches adulthood, she can exact from them whatever is fit to be given to her. Meaning, we give her a tenth of the father's estate, even though when she was a minor she agreed to accept only a hundred or fifty, a small dowry, but she doesn't lose her right of one-tenth of the estate. In other words, her consent has no legal force. She was a minor. So she said only accepted a hundred. Very nice. And the father's a millionaire, a billionaire. No, no, she gets ten percent of the estate. If the father married off the first daughter when he was still alive, the dowry we give the second daughter should be the equivalent, the same way he gave for the first, and, and he died in between. So the dowry we give from the estate should be equivalent to what the father gave the first daughter, because we know, we know what the father would give. This is what he would give for his daughter's marriage. It could be even more, more, whatever it is. It could be more than a tenth. It could be less than a tenth. Not a tenth. You give her whatever that we can. We have to estimate the the mind of the father. What he would have given. Well, we already have the proof. This is what he gave for his, for his daughter. So we know that that's what he wants to give for, for each of his daughter's marriage. Obligations. This, we're only. A, it's all based on assumptions. It's not an obligation. The father says clearly, leaves explicit instruction, don't give my daughters anything. You're not obligated to. You're not obligated to give a dowry to his daughter. But we, we estimate a normal father wants to give to his daughter, wants to start, start his daughter's life off on the right foot. So we, but we don't know what. He didn't leave any instructions. So we evaluate and we say, so the rabbis say 10%. The Buddha says, no, if we have any indication what the father had in mind, there was already a marriage and he was alive, then we just follow that indication. No. Sometimes a person is poor and he becomes rich. Sometimes a person is rich and becomes poor. So the fact that what he gave the first daughter, he can't use that to determine what he wants to give a second daughter. Circumstances change. Rather, we praise the state and we give her accordingly, meaning we give 10%. That's the argument of Hood and the rabbis. That's the mission. Talking about Amr Shmuel, Shmuel said, We have to determine how much she receives for her provision. We have to assess the character of the father. We have to assess how much we think the father would want to give. And what a mate will ask you, we, uh, we learned in the Braise, Abundance in Zainas and Pansam, Mitzia, Vietnam, 
the daughters are sustained from the estate of the father. Kesar, how he named, and we don't say, we don't say, if the father would have been alive, he would have given her such and such an amount. We're talking about the, the dowry. So we say, the Braithus says, clearly we don't base it, we don't assess what the father would have given. We evaluate the whole estate and we give her a percentage. My What does the Braise mean? is referring to the husband's provision, meaning the dowry, what he would give for a marriage. To enter into a marriage, the father gives the daughter a certain amount. So we see it's not like Shmuel says that we have to assess and evaluate what we think the father would decide, would want to give. So no, the Braise is talking about Panosis Atma. To sustain her, that's already part of the ksuva. Part of the tenoyim, part of the stipulations of the ksuva is that not only is he going to take care of his wife after his death, or in case of a divorce, but he's also going to take care of the daughter that the wife bears from him. That he has to take, provide for them until they get married. So he says, what level of support do we have to give her? So it depends on his wealth. If he was poor then we only have to give the minimum amount that we learned earlier in the Mishnah. But if it's rich, we have to evaluate and assess. If he was rich, he would want his daughters to live comfortably. That even if he's stingy, let's say, let's say if he became wealthy and he's stingy, he would only give him a small amount. doesn't matter. We, we do a percentage of his wealth. He died wealthy, so we have to give the daughters a percentage. But Shmuel is talking, when Shmuel says we have to evaluate, we're talking about the dowry. That we have to evaluate what his intent would be, because that's not the stipulation of the ksuba. So that we have, we don't know, we have to evaluate. It says two terms. She's sustained and provided for. My love, Achas, Parnassah, what's the two terms referring to? One of them means Parnassah Sabal, the dowry. And the other one, Parnassah Zatman, the other one is to provide for her. The mother says, Rav Nachman says, No, it's talking about, both talking about her own provisions. Like, gosh, it's not a, why does it say two terms? There's two parts. He has to sustain, he has to give her to eat, allowance to eat. But then she also needs an allowance, clothing, garments. So that allowance, that's what he's referring to. But it's all referring to part of the stipulation of that he has to provide for them. He has to sustain them for all their needs. And that we don't evaluate what his intent was. We don't care what his intent was. We just give the daughters a percentage, a daughter percentage of, of his estate, whatever it is. If he's wealthy... And she gets a, a higher, a higher percentage. Yes, but tonight we learn in our Mishnah that we just learned. And the rabbis say, that sometimes a person is poor and becomes rich. Or rich and becomes poor, and therefore the rabbis say they disagree. They argue with Rabbi Huda. They say we don't evaluate, we just give. Um, we don't evaluate, we just give them a percentage. So how could Shmuel, Shmuel Paskins like Rabbi Yehuda? So what answers, my oni, my oshi. What do you mean poor and rich? If he means he was poor, financially he was poor. And rich means that he became rich 
he increased his netting, his net worth, then that would mean that the, the, the Rabbi Yehuda, who argues with the rabbis, holds, that you're saying that even if he was rich, and he became poor, we evaluate what he gave the first daughter, and we have to give the same for the second daughter. What do you mean? The first daughter, he was rich, then he became poor. Why would why would Rabbi Huda hold that he has to give the estate has to give the second daughter the same amount that he gave the first daughter? Why he became poor? A Leslie doesn't have love Surely, what the Mishnah means on the on the Not talking about just like his financial wealth is also emotional, emotional and psychological wealth and emotional and psychological poor. Is a person who's a billionaire, but emotionally and psychologically they're like a child. They're so impoverished internally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, intellectually. So, meaning, so Rabbi Huda arguing the case, the value, the financial value didn't change. So Rabbi Huda is assuming that his generosity remains the same. Just like he was generous to the first daughter, so surely we, surely we evaluate that's what he wants to give the second daughter as well. Tani and the rabbi say, We have to give. No, we don't give the same amount as the first daughters because maybe his disposition changed. Maybe he gave the daughter a certain amount, and meanwhile he started learning Hasidus, started learning Tanya, it opened his mind, it opened his heart, and suddenly became generous. And understanding and giving, a life is not meant to hoard, life is meant to give. You know, you don't take your money with you to the, to the grave. People, you know, you have to spend and enjoy the experience and give your children. So maybe, so therefore you can't evaluate based on, or vice versa. Maybe then he was generous, now suddenly became the opposite. So he says, that's what the rabbis say, you have to give a fixed amount. Alma we see, but what do we see? But what do we see with the rabbis say? We don't evaluate, we don't assess the state of mind. Because it changes. You can't. Maybe then he would have, in one way, today is a different way. But do you have to the Shmuel, so this contradicts Shmuel, it says when it comes to the dowry, we assess, we evaluate the state of mind. The mother answers, Rabbi Huda, yeah, Shmuel says he follows Rabbi Huda. So he follows Rabbi Huda. So he should have said clearly the law follows Rabbi Huda. Not that he's saying something new, he's innovating. He just said there's an argument, and I'm telling you the law follows Rabbi Huda. He might answer, if he would have told us I would think that's only in the case where we have something to evaluate. Before he died, he married off a daughter already. So we have a measuring, we can measure and evaluate. But what if he never married off a daughter? We have no way to evaluate. Maybe then Rabbi Huda would agree with the rabbis that you just give a percentage. So that's commercial, and that's why Rabbi Shmuel is coming. He just know that according to Rabbi Yehuda, time of Rabbi Yehuda does live. The reason of Rabbi Yehuda does live, the reason of Rabbi Yehuda is because we, we have to evaluate his state of mind. It doesn't matter if he married off a daughter, didn't marry off a daughter, we can, we can assess and evaluate what we think he would want to give. Why does the Mishnah, why does Rabbi Yehuda state his, his argument in a case where he already married off a daughter? Why is Rabbi Yehuda limiting his 
this case. If the principle here is we evaluate his state of mind, what difference does it make if he did marry off a daughter, didn't marry off a daughter? Why does he want to say, evaluate what he gave for the first daughter when he was alive, and then, then you'll know what he wants to give to the second daughter after his death? He's, coming, he's only using this example to teach us the power of the opinion of the rabbis. Even in the case we already married off a daughter already. The Galitite, and he already told us what he wants to spend. He made a lavish wedding. Or he made a very cheap wedding. Tuna fish and herring. Doesn't matter. So you would think the rabbi would say, listen, in this case, there's nothing to evaluate. He said clearly what is in mind, what his intention is. Nevertheless, the rabbi say, no, you can't follow. Maybe he changed it. Did he like that daughter? Yeah, or maybe he himself changed. Maybe he was impoverished. Right? He was a cheapskate. Hashem blessed him with wealth. Instead of using his money to enjoy life and to give to his children, he's holding, he's hoarding, and he's still cutting coupons. You know, made the cheapest wedding in town. So fine, but maybe he changed. Maybe since then he changed. So you can't follow, you can't evaluate and assess. You have to, you give a percentage. I heard this expounded in your name that you said the law follows Rabbi Yehuda. Amalei Rav Chista said to Rav, Yehi Rav, it should be Hashem's will. I wish that all such excellent statements you should say in my name. So it means that Rav agrees with Rav Chista. Rav agrees with Rabbi Yehuda. In fact, when Miriam Rav Hachi, the Rav say this, Rabbi Yehuda says, a daughter is being supported by the estate and headed by the brothers. Who inherits the estate? It's the sons. But the sons have an obligation to, to use the money from the estate to support their sisters. So they tell us, So she takes a tenth of the estate for that. So when she gets married, they have to give her a tenth of the estate for a dowry. So says the law follows like Rebbe, which is like the rabbis. You give a percentage, you don't assess and evaluate. And here Rav is praising Rav Chizda, like he's agreeing that the law follows Rabbi Huda. Which one is it? The Gemara says, Lekash, it's not a contradiction. Rabbi Huda said, is it talking about when we can assess the father? But Rebbe's ruling which takes a tenth when we did not assess him. We can't assess him. We don't know him. We don't know the father. He didn't live here. When do we follow Lord Rabbi Huda if we could? But if he can't, even Rabbi Huda would agree that he had to be sentenced. It also makes sense. Said, there was once an incident and they'd be awarded a one-twelfth of the estate not one-tenth so it's a contradiction here he says a tenth of the estate and here he gave her a twelfth we have to say that even according to Debbie you know what the difference was in the case we gave her twelve because we knew the father and we knew that the father would only want her to get a twelfth not he wouldn't give her a tenth but in the case where we don't know the father, we can't assess and evaluate his, his state of mind, then, then of course, according to everyone, we say you give him 10, 10%. It's a shmami, no, it's a proof. Right? Yeah, uh, now we, we got 
gets back to the text of the Braisa that we just quoted. A daughter supported by by brothers who inherit the estate. The estate has to support her. They have to support her. And they tell Sis and when she gets married, they'll give her 10% of the estate. A tenth of the estate. I'm little Rabbi. So they said to Rabbi, according to your opinion, a person who has ten daughters and a son, he's left with nothing. If you can divide the estate in ten parts, every daughter gets married, she walks away with 10% of the estate, the son gets zero. He answers them, no, you don't understand what I said. The, the first daughter gets 10%. Shania, the second daughter, gets 10% of what's left. What's left? Whatever's left over, you got 10%. The first daughter, it pays to be older. She gets 10% of the full estate. Right, they want to get married first, right. And then they share their portions equally. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He says, no, it doesn't matter. Each one, no, you divide it. Each daughter gets 10% of what's left, what's left, what's left. So, of course, the, the bulk remains, the bulk, yeah, the, but the bulk remains with the son. But then all the daughters, you add up all the 10% that each one got, and then they divide it equally amongst themselves. All the daughters get equal. Interesting. Right. No, no jealousy. No, it doesn't matter. Older, younger, they all share the portions equally. But each one already took already. They didn't get married together. They get ten daughters get married over ten, ten years or twenty years. This is what you say. Oh, coolly, They all come to get married at the same time. But you're right. If so, and so it does pay to marry early. Whoever gets married first, once she takes hers, you're not ready to get married. She's done. It's gone. They all may get married at the same time, then that's what you do. You take ten and then ten what's left and then you add it all up and then you divide it equally in ten amongst the ten doors. Tenses. If they all come to marry at the same time, they take one ten. What do you mean? One ten? They take a ten together. And they share the portions equally. Each one takes a tenth, and, you, and another tenth what's left, and tenth what's left, and you put it all together, and then they divide it equally amongst ten. Divided by ten. Come the and the rabbis learn habanes, the orphan daughters, bain bagru actually whether they attain bagrus. Bagrus is twelve and a half. She reaches maturity puberty at the age of twelve. Six months later, she reaches bagrus. Then the father no longer has any any control over it. But, but the, the orphan daughters, Bain Bagru, actually, if they reach the Bagrus before she got married. Bain Nisu, actually, or they got married before they reach Bagrus. In other words, either when they were minor or when she was a nighter, after she became, she reached puberty, after she became Bas Mitzvah. If the Mizain they lose their support. The brothers, the estate is only obligated to support her until she reaches 12 and a half or until she gets married, whatever comes first. But the moment she reaches, the moment she reaches, but Nisu, what, if she gets married, she already lost her support. Even before, he's saying, he's saying, according to this Tanda, he's saying that in the marriage, so it says, the stipulation is like this, the estate has to support her until either 
she reaches 12 and a half, or until she gets married, whatever comes first. Marriage here is referring to the completion of the marriage, not the first stage of betrothal. Even though she's betrothed, they still have to support her until she reaches 12 and a half, or until she completes the marriage. Either one, whichever one comes first, she marries, or she reaches 12 and a half, she's cut off. She's no longer, they no longer have to support her. But they don't lose their dowries. Because she gets married later in life, the father wants to give his daughter a dowry. So the estate has to give her a dowry, 10% that she gets even if she marries later. No, they also lose their dowry. So what do they do? Let's say she's approaching Bagrus and can't find a husband. She doesn't want to lose her dowry. What should she do? <laughs> they hire husbands. <laughs> you know, these fake marriages, you, you want to get a visa, you get a marriage. <laughs> he hires husband. You get the money. And then you get get the money. money. Who will marry them, right? And of course, you're going to give them a financial incentive. Right. <laughs> and then they extract their dowries. And then they leave. And then they leave. The law follows the Rebbe, not like Shemim and Allah. No, the, the, she doesn't lose her dowry. Yes, they no longer have to support her. She's old enough, she can work, she can take care of herself, or she'll get married. So the husband will take care of her. But the, the dowry is no rush. We're not forcing her to find a husband before, by, her, by herself, an orphaned daughter before the age of 12 and a half. Come on. The dowry... She still gets entitled to her dowry. It doesn't matter what age she marries. We learned in our Mishnah. An orphan daughter, a minor, whose mother or brother married her off and she has to consent. Because, and they wrote a dowry of a hundred, a small dowry, hundreds of fifties. And she agreed. Once she grows up, she can take the full the full the full dowry that's coming. Ten percent. Whatever dowry would be fitting for her, ten percent, whatever, we have to give her. So what do we see from this mission? At time a diktana. The mission is the reason she doesn't lose a dowry because she married a minor. So the fact that she agreed for such a small dowry, it, it has no legal implications. What does a minor know? It means nothing. So therefore she's entitled to a full dowry. But what if she married when she was already reached puberty, she already reached bas mitzvah, 12 years old, then vitra, then she could waive her rights of a dowry. So we see the law doesn't follow Debbie. Debbie says there's no, there's no statute of limitation. It doesn't end with, the, with the, she always gets a dowry. Here the mission says clearly not. Once she's an adult and she agrees, she doesn't get a dowry. But it says like Kasha, it's not a contradiction. Rebbe's ruling, is, you're right, Rebbe's talking about, she protests. She says, no, I'm, I'm not, I don't agree with 150. I, I want to get my full dowry. So then she doesn't lose a dowry. But if she doesn't protest, she reaches adulthood and she doesn't protest, she has a right to waive her rights. She's waiving her rights. You agreed on 100. You agreed on 50. You're saying, I'm happy with this. I don't need anything more. I don't want anything from my father's estate. I'm independent. I'm an independent woman. I'll do everything on my own. So if you're an adult, you want to waive your rights. 
No one is forcing you. This also makes sense. Because if not, Kasha the Rebbe, the Rebbe. Otherwise, it's a contradiction from Rebbe and Rebbe himself. Tani will learn the Braise, Rebbe, and Rebbe says, Pass, and he's in this Menachin, and he tells us in this Nechad. We learned earlier, brought down the Braise, a daughter who's a sister who's, who's supported by her brothers from the estate. No, he tells us he takes 10% dowry. From the Braise, it seems, only a daughter who is supported. The state is, is, is supporting her. But what if the state is not supporting her? In other words, she's a begetter, she already reached 12 and a half, and the estate is no longer obligated to support her, she's on her own. Then it would, then it would say that she doesn't get it. She no longer gets a 10% dowry. It contradicts Rebbe. Rebbe just said clearly that, that she always gets. There's no statute of limitation. Even once she's past 12 and a half, she doesn't lose her right of getting a dowry. Here the Bryson Rebbe says himself, not so, that only as long as she's supported, which means up until the age of 12 and a half, only then does she get a dowry. But once she's past the age of 12 and a half, she's no longer supported by the estate. She no longer has any rights to any dowry. So you have to answer, make that it's not a contradiction. He's talking about two different cases. If she protests, she says, I'm not giving up my dowry. You're cutting me off because I'm 12 and a half. You're no longer supporting me. You don't have to give me food. You don't have to give me clothing. I'm on my own. But I'm not giving up on my dowry. Then they have to give her a dowry. It doesn't matter when she gets married. But if she doesn't protest, it means she waves her rights. She's an adult. She's a legal adult. She waves her rights. You wave your rights. Then there's no longer any... You can get the dowry before... You have no choice. They would hire her husband. It makes no sense. Exactly. I heard from Avadavavim your name... That Bagra, an orphan daughter who reaches Bagra is 12 and a half, ain't that Sikhlim, she doesn't, does not have to protest. And this is, but if she gets married as a night, ain't that Sikhlim, she doesn't have to protest. No, if she didn't, she didn't ask for a dowry, she can collect it even later. Doesn't have to protest, doesn't have to say, well, I want my dowry. She doesn't have, it goes without saying. She's going she's to collect the dowry. It's not today, tomorrow. But if she already is 12 and a half, and then she got married, and she doesn't say a word, she doesn't come to the brothers and say, okay, I want my dowry for the wedding. She's silent. That means she waves her rights. That means she waves her rights. By reaching 12 and a half, she doesn't have to say anything. It's assumed she's still entitled to a dowry. Why does he have to say anything? But if she's 12 and a half and she gets married and she doesn't demand a dowry, that means she's waving her. Even if she doesn't know. Well, the money everyone knows. Everyone is a genius and an Einstein when it comes to their money. There's no such thing you don't know. Did the Ravah say this? From our Mishnah about the Yisayma. Namnachman said that the law follows Rebbe. We just learned, remember? Namnachman said the law follows Rebbe. That, uh, that even after 12 and a half, she still retains her right to a dowry. And Rav challenged him. It says in our Mishnah that only a minor, she was married and she was a minor, then she enjoys the right. But if she marries him, she's a nida. She doesn't enjoy the, she, she no longer enjoys the right. She waves away her right. 
So how could Rebbe say that even after 12 and a half she gets arrived? Vishonu Lein of Nachman answered to Rava that no, it's not a contradiction. The mission is talking about the mission talking about that that, uh, that she didn't protest. If she didn't protest, then only when she's a minor. A minor, even though she agreed for 150, doesn't mean anything. She's a minor, has no legal power. But once she reaches puberty, when she doesn't say anything, she waves her rights. But if she protests, even if she's 12 and a half, she never doesn't, doesn't wave her right. So what do we see from here? That a naira has to protest. Not like Rav said here, that a naira, once she reaches 12, 12 she, doesn't have, she doesn't have to protest. You said even if she's 12 and a half, she doesn't have to protest. Even if she married as a naira, she doesn't have to protest. Rav himself, Rav Nachman told Rav that you do have to protest. When you're 12 years old, you don't have to protest. You're 12 years old and you're married, you don't have to protest. Not like you say here that only if she's 12 and a half and she marries, then, then, then she has to uh, she has to protest. Your mother says, Likash, it's not a contradiction. When Rava said that a naira does not have to protest, she still retains her right for the dowry. We're talking about if she's supported by her brothers. If they continue to support her after she marries, they're not obligated. But if they continue to support her, so the fact that she doesn't demand her dowry doesn't mean she waives her rights. But here, when they're cutting her off, if she marries and she's 12 and they cut her off and they no longer support her so she has to speak up she has to demand the rights for the dowry okay you're cutting me off you're no longer giving me any food and financial support but where's my dowry if she's silent that means that she waives her rights her right to dowry is not like the conditions, the stipulation of Iksuvah. Stipulation of Iksuvah is obligatory. It's not optional. The Parnasa, giving her dowry, that's, that's the, the stipulation of Iksuvah is you have to feed her, you have to clothe her, you have to take care of her, provide for her, until she reaches either 12 and a half or until she gets married. But dowry, it's not, it's not a stipulation of Iksuvah. Sigmar said, what's the difference? What's the practical difference when you're saying it's not like the stipulation of Iksuvah? Ename, if you want to say that you mean. That an obligation of the Iksuvah, you can even fulfill that obligation even by collecting a mortgageable property. If the estate sold property and there's no money to take care of the daughters, you can sell, take it, extract that property from the buyer and say, I'm sorry, this property is already mortgaged to the obligation to take care of his daughters. But to, to get dowry, if there's no money in the estate to pay for a dowry, you don't collect it from money, property that was sold to others because it's not, it's not, a, it's not a stipulation. It doesn't have the power of the document. There's no uh, lien. It's not like a lien. This stipulation so it was like a lien, and that lien takes precedence over over the sale. So you would extract it from the buyer. But here, there's no lien, 
it's it's something we assess and evaluate what the father would want, but but it's no lien, it's not an obligation, and therefore you can't take it away from from the buyer. Of course, well, what, what's the Rebbe coming to teach us? It happens every day. Everyone knows that. It's, it's, a, it's a, the daily fact that we know that you take out money. If the state doesn't have enough money to provide and support the children, we take it out. There's a lien for supporting the children, o- overrides and comes and proceeds, takes precedent over the sale, and if we do, we extract the property. But when it comes to a dowry, we don't. Everyone knows that. So what's the Rebbe coming to teach us? rather is coming to say is that the, the the stipulation of the of the ksub, that we collect from any cash that's in the house any movable item that's in the house but it's an, it's a, but it's ksub, uh, I'm sorry panosa the dowry we collect even from movable items but, but the stipulation of the ksuva we only collect from land, but not, not from movable items. The ksuva itself. The ksuva itself you only collect from property. You don't accept, uh, you don't, uh, you don't uh, uh, extract payment from, from chattel. Right. Yeah, from cash. Fixed property. So the stipulation of ksuva is just like the ksuva itself. But the the uh, the dowry, whatever 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 assets you have, it doesn't matter. You can't say that. But according to Rebbe, the dowry and the sustenance we also collect from cash, movable holds clearly that there's no distinction. Even the stipulation of the ksuva we also collect from movable items from cash. Why is that different than the ksuva? Was that was a stipulation? The stipulation of the ksuva is that the estate has to support the daughters. Whatever cash is available, you have to you have to you have to support. So what, so what does Rebbe then mean? What, is, what distinction is there between the dowry and the sustenance, which is a stipulation of the ksuva? Hello, rather, my parnosinik, my ksuva. Look at the Tanya. What he means is referring to like we learned in the shame If a person says before he dies, I don't want my daughters, I don't like my daughters, I don't want them to be sustained by my estate after my death, we don't listen to him. It's a stipulation of the ksuva, it's an obligation. I don't care, you like, you don't like, you want, you don't want, who cares? But if he says, I don't want to give my, any dowry to my daughters, that you listen to. It's his prerogative. It's no obligation. You can't force him. Mm-hmm. We're just assessing and evaluating the state of mind what we think he would want to give. And he says, clearly, I don't want to give. It's no obligation. The daughters can't demand it. Yeah. So, but that's what he means that it's not, it's not a... It's not a okay. Everyone have a wonderful day.